This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Club in Real Life, our live event in San Diego this coming March 12th through 14th. You can get your tickets now at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash T-C-C-I-R-L. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 171 as we chat with copywriter Stefan Georgi about his approach to writing long copy, the ROI escalation ladder and how we can use it in our businesses, what it takes to write copy that produces $700 million in revenue over six years, and how he gets his clients to sell his services for him. Welcome, Stefan. Hey, Stefan. Hey, guys. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. We met you through Brian Kurtz, through the Titans Masterclass, and so glad we can hang out today. And also, you're going to be speaking at our event in March, which is really exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled for that. I really appreciate you guys inviting me to come speak, but I cannot wait for that. All right. So why don't we start off with your story? How did you end up as a copywriter? Yeah, so... It's definitely one of those sort of funny uh, twists of fate or, or kind of things that are, it's a bit unexpected, I suppose you'd say. I, I was, in 2011, I was teaching uh, at an outdoor school in Marble Falls, Texas, which is about an hour and a half outside of uh, Austin. And I was at this place called the Outdoor School, which was like a summer camp during the summer and a outdoor ed type facility during the spring and the fall where kids from all over Texas would be would come in on buses and stay from anywhere from a couple of days to like a week and they'd be taught about nature, living off the land, water quality, astronomy, and things like that. So I was one of the instructors there, which that happened because I'd been in like a, a phone call center type job that I hated and was like, I want to go be in nature and I applied to to do this job and got accepted. So I was in Marble Falls, Texas teaching kids about the outdoors and nature. And I thought that's what I was going to do for an extended period of my life. But in May of that year, maybe late April, uh, I went hiking with my dad back in San Diego. We hiked up a mountain and I was just home for like a, a weekend and went back to Texas to keep teaching kids about nature. And then I found out that my, I got a call maybe a week or two later that my, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and he ended up having stage four cancer. Uh, it was a, a rare form of liver cancer and when I found that out and, and kind of did the whole thing where you, you look it up on Wikipedia to see how bad is it, and they say it's, it's you know, basically 99% like mortality rate uh, and very fast and realized that my dad was not going to be around for very long, I went back home to San Diego to spend the as much time as I could with my dad before he passed. And I know it's a really heavy way to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, little, a little heavy. Just <laughs> yeah. coming right in with the, the cancer and the dad dying story. But um, it's one of those crazy things nonetheless, because I, you know, I did go back home that, that summer to San Diego. I moved in with my parents and, you know, it was a difficult time and uh, challenging, but of course I was glad I did it because I got to be there and, and get spend this quality time with my father. Um, and then he passed at the end of October, October 22nd of 2011. And after that, I, I kind of, I needed a break and wanted to, you know, after the funeral and everything, wanted to, to, get out and, and clear my head or, or do something for myself because it had been a while. And so I ended up 
booking a trip to Las Vegas and I posted on Facebook, Hey, who wants to go somewhere with me? And then the friend of mine from college was like, I've never been to Las Vegas. So that's why we picked Las Vegas. And so he and I booked a weekend for December. I think it was like the 12th through the 14th, 2011 Vegas. So we go to Las Vegas, we're at the circus circus. I've got, you know, a couple hundred dollars in my bank account. That's it. And the first night we're there, we lose most of it playing blackjack. And then the second day we decided to play poker instead of blackjack. And I win a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, great. So the final day, Sunday, we decided to play poker again. We go to Caesar's Palace, which we picked a completely at random. And we go sit to a card, the card room. There's maybe 25 different card tables in the card room, poker tables in the card room. We're sitting there. A girl walks into the card room. I immediately think she's absolutely beautiful. And I make a joke to the table. I hope she gets seated at our table because you don't get to pick. When you walk into a poker room, you go up to the desk and then they assign you to a table. Uh, but she did get seated at our table and I was happy about that. And we're playing poker and somebody asked her what she did for a living. And she said, I'm a writer and I wanted to talk to her. So I said, what kind of writer? And she said, I'm a copywriter. And I was like, wow, you know, copywriting, that's really interesting. And I, I pulled out my phone and Googled, I like the iPhone one or whatever, but I Googled what's a copywriter <laughs> because I had no idea what a copywriter even was. Um, and that's the first time I ever even heard of copywriting. But basically, the the girl and I hit it off and ended up playing poker together. And to make a really long story short, I, I took one last job with a Fortune 500 company. But the girl ended up moving in with me like pretty much after we met. And I was out there for this Fortune 500 company doing this outside sales job where I, I was in like the hot sun all day. And I made $200 a day and I'd come home and she was in her underwear drinking a beer and she'd made $1,200 in the same day. And it got to the point where I was like, well, I, you know, what am I doing here? I want to do what you're doing. And I asked her, do you think I could be a copywriter? Do you think I could make money doing that? And and she was, she, you know, she had gotten to know me a bit at that point. And, and you know, she was like, yeah, you're, you seem like a great writer and, you know, I'll help you out. And why don't you go ahead and post something? So I, I posted something on a site called Warrior Forum and the Warriors for Hire section and I charged $149 for a sales letter and I went to bed and I woke up that next uh, morning and I had $298 in my PayPal account. So two people had gotten sales letters from me. Uh, and that was like the whole aha moment of, oh my God, people will pay me to write. I could do that. And um, I quit my corporate job like a month after that and then made tons of mistakes and learned a ton of stuff, but eventually, you know, got pretty good at copy and um, yeah, that, that's, I don't want to just kind of ramble for too long to start, but, but that's sort of, are the, you, uh, the are you with there. that woman, the copywriter today? Before she murders me. Yes. And then that woman is my wife oh, Okay, um, and we have a daughter together and, um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, it was a really fortuitous moment in my life to be sure. So I've got to know, Stefan, who's the better copywriter, you or your wife? You know, I'm supposed to be diplomatic here, but me. <laughs> yeah, we need to. I don't know. We need to get your wife on here next and speak to her. This, is, this needs to happen. She's really good. She's really good as well, and it's, she's great at um, like kind of like like bizoppy, but not in like the you know. I don't mean in like the the really sleazy kind of um, make fifty thousand dollars in a week from home type stuff, but that kind of like like new softwares, like SaaS type things, uh, like products things, things of like business like like events like that kind of copy she's like really good at she actually wrote uh, a sponsorship letter for our copy accelerator mastermind because we're gonna because people wanted to sponsor our mastermind and and so we we're looking for a writer and she's like well i haven't written anything in a while i'll write it and i was just going through it the other day and i was like 
damn, she's good. So she is really good as well. Um, but I think just because I've done it, I've been way more active over the last several years than her. That's the reason I give myself the the edge. There you go. <laughs> we did we did tease the fact that over the next six years you made something close to seven hundred million dollars for your clients. So let's let's tell the rest of the story from you know almost three hundred dollars in your PayPal account to those kinds of numbers. Like, how did you do that? That's a great question. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a couple of different things. I, one thing is that, and this is going to sound silly, but I really did obsess over the craft and focus on being like the best I could be at that. And the reason I think that's important is because you do get some copywriters today or people who are attracted to copywriting and they come in and they hear about people making a lot of money and they write for a year and they kind of feel like, you know, now, now I, I should be getting paid 10,000 or 20,000 or $30,000 or whatever it is. And you know, the answer is you should get paid that when you can get the results for your clients that enable them to pay that, you know, to you and you're able to do that consistently. And so you know, it didn't happen overnight. It, well, I went from like $149 a sales letter to 249 to 297 uh, What ultimately happened, and I guess this would have been twenty, late 2012 or early 2013, I had a guy who hired me from that same Warrior Forum ad or, or you know, a, an updated version of it. And I think I was charging $497 for a sales letter at that time. And he said, you know, hey, I'm going to, I have this project for you. I'm going to pay you 997 Instead of four ninety seven, but I want you to just make it really good, and so that was just a huge deal to me because someone's gonna pay me double, and you know that was the first time I thought I could maybe charge a thousand dollars for a sales letter, and so I wrote the letter for this guy, and it ended up doing pretty well, and then he was partnered in a survival company with a guy named uh, Tryon Savion, who him and his brother are still pretty active. In fact, Tryon's in uh, the Titans Mastermind as well, um, and so he. Tryon and, and then the other guy who originally hired me had me start doing survival copy for them. And I wrote some stuff for them that started to get a bit of uh, traction. And then the guy who originally hired me, Tryon's partner, left Tryon to start a health company called Lions Publishing. They're based in Romania and had a few other partners. And through, I actually went to them and I, I said, Hey, like, I, I'd love to just like have more stability. Like, I want to write for you guys. And if I could just write sales letters for you full time, like, that would be great. But you're in Romania. And for all I know, you could all, you know, like disappear tomorrow. So is there something we can do to kind of make it so it's like a win-win type of situation? And at first they said, no, they're like, no, we don't want that kind of burden or responsibility. And I said, okay, but I did a, an offer for them for like a blood sugar support, uh, ebook, just a book about how to kind of manage your blood sugar naturally and things like that. And they did really well. And they came back to me and said, okay, well, you know what, actually, sure. Like we are interested in that. So we created a deal where. I basically got paid on volume. They were going for the blockbuster model. So the more sales letters I wrote for them, the more I made. And and so it's this whole tiered thing of if I did like four sales letters in a month, I'd get $4,000. But if I could do 12 sales letters in a month, which I know sounds crazy, and we can talk about that <laughs> in a second. Uh, but if I was able to do that, I could basically earn up to like $80,000 a month. So it was like this massive difference, right? I'm like, man, for four sales letters, it's 4000 For 12 sales letters, I can make 80000 um, I want to do that. And and what I ended up doing is developing this whole process to really streamline my copywriting and, and make it really formulaic and modular. And it's something I call the RMBC method, uh, RMBC. Uh, and so I started doing it. I started pumping out all this copy for these guys. And then I didn't actually know how successful it was because I really didn't know a lot about the space at that time. And then the same guy who had hired me on Warrior Forum, you know, in late 2012, early 2013, 
came to visit me and I'd moved back to San Diego at that time. And I was living on a beach house cause I was making some good money. And, um, and, you know, he's talking to me, he's like, I don't think you realize like kind of how good, you know, your copy is or how much money we're making. And I was kind of like, no, like, well, no, I'm not. And, and he kind of like, he kind of danced around it. And I was like, you know, but you, know, you can tell me and I'm not gonna ask for more money. And then basically he told me, which was that they were doing at that, at that point, it happened if they were tracking to do over $100 million in revenue for like a single year based on the offers I'd written for them. And when they told me that, of course, I immediately was like, um, you know, I need more money. <laughs> um, but yeah, so and then, you know, I, I think they're saying like, they, at that time, they were on ClickBank, and then they got kicked off and went over to software projects because they were a little bit too aggressive for ClickBank over time. ClickBank became a little bit more conservative with their offers. But um yeah, I think I had like eight of the 10 top offers on ClickBank I had written and, you know, they were, yeah, doing over 10 million a month. And then I ended up building like a, an agency kind of for them where I, I trained new writers and we created more offers for them that I copy chiefed. And, you know, they ended up doing several hundred million in revenue during their time together or, you know, and eventually I think they're still out there and some of these offers still do some sales, but, um, that was sort of the first big thing. Uh, and then from there I left and started my own health supplement company and was able to, I mean, there's so many things I could go deeper into, but, but eventually figured that out and then started more health supplement companies with some partners. And we got to nine figures a year in revenue of that stuff. Uh, and then since 2017, I've been doing uh, a lot of stuff, but I still do client work and I get to work with some of these really big clients who have nine figure plus businesses. And when I write offers for them that are successful, um, the cool thing is they can really scale. And so, yeah, over time, when you, when you add it all up, I'm, just a little bit over 700 million and, and counting. So, um, yeah, it's been a crazy, but really it all started with, with, with warrior forum and getting kind of lucky with the right client hiring me. And then again, really focusing on, you know, giving them great copy. Cause like if I wrote a bunch of copy for these guys, but it sucked then nothing would have ever happened. They would have stopped paying me. So I had to be, I had to be good. And I had to focus on just being the best I could at and, and giving them world-class sales copy every single time. Okay. There's so much there. I definitely want to hear about your RMBC method and the 12 sales letters in a month. But you you mentioned obsessing over the craft. And I think that's really important to dig into because it's easy for us to say as beginning copywriters, like, oh yeah, I am obsessing over the craft. I'm I'm training, I'm learning. But I think that's probably really different for the average copywriter compared to what you were doing and that level of obsession. So can you just paint the picture of what your obsession actually looked like? Like, did it include trainings or just reading a different book every day? Or what what did that look like so that we could do that if we want to become obsessive and improve in the craft? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great question. And I, I think for one thing, there, and there's there's memes about this and stuff like that, but like, um, they're like, you know, we, we all, we get the client and the client's like, I'm going to send you the money. And we have this adrenaline rush and we feel great. And then the actual work, the realization we have to do the actual work sets in. And there's this like almost like letdown. Um, so it's like we, a lot of people who are copywriters and I'm, I'm generalizing for sure, but they, they kind of like think they like being a copywriter, but they actually love sales and getting somebody to say, yes, I want to give you a chunk of money. Um, and so then they get kind of really focused on that part of the process, like the sales process and like the, the client acquisition process, instead of focusing on actually, you know, delivering the best copy that they can once they've been hired. And so, and I'll go deeper, I'll talk about books and stuff like that, but, but just on a, on a broad level, like the one thing I try to think about is for any, any time I have to write a sales letter, instead of thinking of it, even that language of I have to write this sales letter, 
I, I really work on my mindset of being excited to be like, like I have the opportunity to write like, you know, the best sales letter I've ever written. And that's going to be like a legendary sales letter that could, you know, be seen by really billions of people because with Facebook, like some of these companies do billions of impressions a month. Um, and I, you know, can, can communicate and touch all of those people. And like, I get the chance to do that. And I think about for me as a, as a dude and a bro, I think about like, you know, professional athletes and how they like, right. Does this Tom Brady take the day off? You know, does he take a week off or a month off? Does he kind of phone it in sometimes? And like, the answer is no. And I'm like, you know, you look at the high performers in any field, it's like they are bringing it every single day. And so I take that mentality to, you know, as I approach writing copy and I started doing that all the way back then. But beyond that though, uh, yeah, it was like, and well, and a good part of it is, is getting excited and, and, and really having fun as, as stupid as that sounds, because I know I said, how does having fun, what does that have to do with being obsessed? But if you can have fun with your research, if you can dive deep, if you can start to really like know that you're going to write like your sales copy, like uh, from the voice of the the avatar, the person that you're targeting, like I almost say you have to be kind of like a, like a sociopath or a psychopath to like be a good sales writer. Because like if I'm writing a great sales letter and it's, I'm targeting a 55 plus primarily male Christian demographic, then like I'm I, in my voice is like, I'm, I'm becoming that person in my head and I'm, getting angry about, you know, Obama and the government or whatever it is. Like I'm, I'm like there, I'm like shaking sometimes almost as I write because I'm really have channeled that. So part of the obsessiveness is being weird. It's like, you're putting on another person's like skin and you're like really living in that world as you write it. And so that's, that's part of obsession is, is, is not being afraid to go that weird and, and deep as you write. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, it was like studying for me, like swipes more than anything. Like I didn't read a ton of like, books on copy and there's all kinds of great, you know, manuals and courses and trainings. But for me, um, I looked at some of that stuff, but it was really like looking at everything that was working and then dissecting it, running it out, not by hand, I would type it out and not, not handwrite it, but I would write those things out I'd line by line and then looking for commonalities. What, you know, what is it that this thing has? And, and even comparing it to once I was successful, even then being like, okay, well, my offers are doing well, but here's like things I like from this, this person's offer or this person's sales letter you know, what if I try adding that to my letter too? what will happen? And then continuing to improve, even once I started writing consistently good sales letters and good sales copy, not becoming complacent, but trying to find, you know, ways that I could push the envelope, ways that I could, you know, ethically borrow from other people and, and use that in my own copy and how and, and where I could innovate. And so just continuously not getting fat and happy, I guess. And I still continue to, to have that mentality. So yeah, I want to go a little deeper on this. Like how much time every day were you spending on mastery and practice? Well, early on, like a, a decent amount. I mean, several, a couple hours a day for sure. Once I started writing 12 sales letters like a month, I, I couldn't necessarily have that much time to do it every day. But actually, but, when, but again, even there, I would say the other amazing thing about being forced to write that much sales copy is you do get really good just because by virtue of you're writing that much, that is practice, right? And so when you're writing that much, where you're writing 4,000 to 7,000 words a day every day of like, sales copy that's got to perform, uh, you, you know, you, you get really efficient, but you also get really good because all the little mental things of what should I do here? What should I do there? Like you kind of like, it becomes more like automatic, almost like a habit. And so it becomes a lot easier to do it at that point too. Yeah. And you mentioned the books or maybe some of your favorite swipes, uh, you know, as you were learning, uh, sh we share those with us. Yeah. I, you know, so I, there's a, a document from like the Screaming Eagle newsletter 
which was from Clay Makepeace and then Tony Flores, who was his publisher. And, and coincidentally, uh, Tony's actually in, in my copyright mastermind now, which is really cool. But um, to, it's about fascinations or uh, like um, bullets and curiosity bullets. And there's like 21 different types of fascinations. And if you, if you can Google Screaming Eagle newsletter fascinations, Clay, Clay Makepeace or Tony Flores, and, and you can find it online for free. Um, but that one was, was one of my favorite things I, I studied and it's still one of my favorite pieces of copy ever. And the reason why, or not copy, but, um, resources ever, because I, I didn't really fully understand fa- fascinations or, or curiosity bullets until then. And, and then when I looked at it, it was just made my writing so much better. And, and so for people who are listening and don't know what I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, they're the same thing when I say fascination or curiosity bullet, but there's basically different types of, um, lines of copy that you, you put into your copy that like tease out something they tease, they, they get you curious and they get you wanting to either read more or to buy the product. So in the beginning of your sales letter, say you're selling a, um, a weight loss supplement. Cause it's like new year's. It could be, you're saying like, and you know, and inside in the next two minutes, I'm also going to show you the weird diet Coke trick that can allow you to lose two pounds of fat each week you know, even if you eat cheesecake like three times a day, I don't know. That's not a great one, but the point is you're like, what's the weird diet Coke trick? Or you know, like, you're just going to discover how a family vacation to the Ozarks led me to stumble upon the fastest, the, the, uh, the best investment strategy for people over 45, you know, hint, it's not annuities. It's was discovered by a pioneer like frontiersmen back in 1830 and then forgotten until now, like just weird shit that you put into your, and I hope I'm allowed to cuss on your podcast. And if not, you're, you're good for now. Okay. I, I'll try not to, but I, every now and then it happens. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the point is, is it's those unique things. And then, and then they're really valuable too, if you're selling an informational product, like a book or a course or a guide, because then you can just start really hammering them in. So, um, so going back to this document, uh, you know, it's got these 21 different types. So, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, although I should, of course, but um, you've got like, you know, the, the how to, like, you know, how to make sure that you never run out of food during a hurricane, even if you didn't go to the grocery store before the rain started to pour, you know, there's like the why bullet, like, um, why, I don't know, like why, uh, why the world's top cyclist says that if you want to get into stronger legs, like, you should spend less time at the gym and more time playing hacky sack. Um, just like weird. Again, I'm just making all this stuff up, but like you, you know, you don't, you don't make, you don't just make crap up. But you like, you know, you, you, you basically take information you have and you present it in a really curious way. So like the how to, the why, what never to do, right? What three things you should never do in a crisis situation? Um, the right wrong, like uh, which was is something to the extent of you know, saving for retirement is a good idea, right? Wrong. Here's why the richest seniors actually don't save, but do this instead. There's just all these different types of bullets. And so that for me was so valuable because it made my copy, it made it more fun to write copy, honestly. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that document or have any idea what I'm talking about. We can, we can link to it in yeah. our show notes. That would be really helpful. Cool. Let's do we that. I'll make a, a note as well to send you guys the link for that. And as you mentioned, you know, and now I realize why I'm not a world-class cyclist because I'm terrible at hacky sack. <laughs> right? Yeah, me too. I just said it never worked for me. You know? Yeah. So uh, I want to hear more about the 12 sales letters in a month because I, I get part of it is the practice. You get faster, you get your systems down. 
but can you just talk through like how, what does that actually look like? What is your, how do you map out the month so that you can create 12 sales letters? And then what is that method, the RMBC method that helps you produce at that level? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, right. So imagine there's generally, you know, 30 days in a month and that includes the weekends, which you'd, you'd rather not work on weekends, but I would sometimes. So really, you know, I was looking at doing ideally like, you know, sales are every two to two and a half days, basically. And um, in order to do that, so the advantage, one nice thing is that these were pretty much all to the same demographic. They weren't all health offers. A lot of them were health offers, but we also did some survival stuff, uh, some personal development stuff, some self-defense stuff, uh, a little bit of financial, things like that as well. But they're all pretty much going to the same audience or demographic, which does help a lot because it cuts back or cuts down on your, on your research. Um, time. So the way, you know, I, I kind of was able to do this is something I, I call um, like in the RM, RMBC method, which stands for research mechanism, brief and copy. And really research is what it sounds like. I mean, you're answering, I have a, like a whole set of questions, of course, and I may be, maybe it's the thing I go into when, when I speak on stage at uh, the event coming up, uh, which anyone who's listening to should come. Cause I'll, I'll, I ramble on. If you get me a beer or something, I will um, just give you all my secrets. We'll get you a thanks couple beers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I can hook you up. I'm really good at that. I'm this is a great event plug. Thank you, Stefan. Oh, no, of course. I'm so, so excited for it. But um, yeah. And, and so, you know, research is always questions about, you know, who your target demographic is, what their pain points are, what their victories are and what their failures are, which is important. Like, what are they proud of in life? What are they ashamed of in life? Like, what are the outside forces that they believe have been holding them back from achieving the results that they want, which sounds kind of weird, but it's like people who, you know, in finance believe that wall street is rigged or in health, who believe that big pharma is bad or whatever. They, they believe certain things have sort of held them back and it's not their fault. And nobody wants to say it's their fault. And in copy besides in personal development, generally this is not the best idea to be like starting your sales copy with, Hey, it's all your fault. And like, you suck. Um, you know, generally, you're trying to be like, it's not your fault. And in fact, you know, it's, it's, you've been, you've been had, but now we're going to show you how you can have success, even though in the past you couldn't. Um, so research is, is answering those questions, but the good thing is because I sort of had the same demographic cons- consistently, I didn't have to go as deep on my research over time. So that cut back on a good chunk of time. Um, but for anybody who's listening to this, who's, who's, really any level of copy. Again, I, I have a mastermind of all these really high level copywriters in it, and they start using the RMBC method and it, it dramatically improves the quality of their copy and the speed with which they write it. So research is still important, but I was able to skimp a little bit. Uh, then we got into like the mechanism, which is broken down into two parts. There's the unique mechanism behind the problem and the unique mechanism behind the solution. And so the unique mechanism behind the problem is explaining the real reason why they are having their problem and why they haven't had success in the past. So for example, you know, someone wants to lose weight and you find out that through, through this part, you have to do some research on if it's like a a health related thing, but you know, you find out that, okay, like um, there's some type of fat cell in the pancreas that scientists have just discovered. And that basically most of fat burning supplements you take never actually target the pancreas. And yet, if you don't activate this one fat burning cell that's in there, it's almost impossible to lose weight according to a new study from Harvard. And so the real reason you haven't lost weight is because you're not targeting fat in your pancreas. And again, just completely making that up. It's just a a weird 
uh, kind of a fact that I've done so many different sales letters that I make up things that sound believable and may not be. Um, but, um, you know, so they're okay. All right. So that's the real reason why I failed. So it's not my fault. It's like, I've tried other pills and, and weight and workouts and diets, but nothing targeted this, this real reason why I couldn't lose weight. Now I know that. So then what's the solution? And you're like, well, if, if the, they're, it's logically connected because if you're like, all right, the, you know, problem is that you've got this type of fat cell in your pancreas that keeps you fat. Then the solution is to target that fat cell and get it to, you know, start melting it or burning it so that you're able to actually lose weight like you want to and then you're tying your product of course into that mechanism of the solution so if it's like a uh you know like an in- ingredient or there's a cer- ingredients in your supplement that actually uh do that one thing that that target your the the fat cells in your pancreas and you know then you're going to start presenting those and then from there it's like and so we took all these ingredients together and put them into a, the supplement and you know now it was born um but the point is really it's like you're trying to get people to understand that they had like 99% of it right before, but there was just that 1% that was missing. And that's a surprising information, which is what the unique mechanism of the problem is. And if you get them to believe that, and they believe that really, okay, this is the one thing that it was missing, then it's easy to get them to say, okay, well, I can make a commitment to, to change 1%. I can do this one thing differently. And then you just position your product uh, as that that 1%, as, that one, as, as the thing that gets them the new results. So I don't know if that makes sense or not. I can pause for a minute because I want to make sure that that's making sense. No, it, it definitely makes sense. And in fact, I really like the two parts to the mechanism because so many times, you know, we think about the mechanism is the thing that makes it work. We've got to talk about it, but the way that you've broken it up into, you know, problem solution as inside the mechanism is really interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's my big my big contribution to this because I, I, I certainly didn't come up with the mechanism or anything, but I think the approach of of splitting it like that is um I hadn't really before I figured that out, seen a lot of people doing it. And I, I think it makes a big difference because otherwise I think people get sometimes get muddled in that they're, they're either going too long on one side or the other, but it, they're not complete, kind of presenting the complete picture. And I think that by breaking it into two parts, you give them a, a more holistic view of the problem and solution. Yeah, I agree. So B is, is a brief, which is sort of some questions you answer for yourself before you start writing. So, um, Things of again, you have all these answers from already having done the research and the mechanism. So it's like, you know, again, who's the market? What are their pain points, short term and long term? Uh, then you're like, you know, what's the story, the background story behind the the product, um, and you know, what is the product itself? And and the real and there's some other questions in there too. But the, the important thing with the brief is really to, as you answer those questions, I I would write them like as if they were going to a sales letter, even though it's gonna be kind of rough. When I was going to write what the product is, I would actually write like as if I was going to sell the product and, you know, I was writing that part of the copy uh, for my sales letter. And same thing for the background story. I'd actually write out this background story. And the reason that was so beneficial is because it was such, it's such tiny little chunks of copy that you're writing the brief. But yet when you go to write the sales letter and you're like, oh man, I already have this done. I already have this done. I already have this done. The mechanism too, right? Because you're re- going to rewrite the mechanism in the brief and you're like, I, I wrote out the mechanism. So suddenly you have all these parts of your sales letter that are already kind of done or that you at least have these prompts for or that they, they've been started. And that makes it a lot easier than to go in. Instead of staring at like a blank screen of paper, you're like, man, I kind of have to just fill in the, the blanks, fill in the missing pieces here and I'll have my sales letter. And then... With C, which is for copy, that's, of course, writing the, the sales letter, the sales copy. And uh, again, this all tie, This is how they all tie together because really, if you look at the structure for most sales letters, it's like the, the lead, right, where you're sort of calling out the pain point, promising the solution to the pain point. You're 
teasing the unique mechanism. You're teasing that's contrarian. You're putting in fascinations. You're addressing their skepticism. You're saying who it's for. Uh, and you're basically, you know, just getting their attention and, and, and you're, you're, you're hitting the story. You're, you're, you're also teasing the, uh, the emotional discovery story or the background story. You're doing all those things in the lead and, and you can basically get all that from your mechanism in your brief. And then after the lead, it goes into the background story, right? Like um, who is the spokesperson or what's the story behind how this product was discovered? And normally it's kind of like, well, you know, I was in pain or somebody like me or like you was in pain and they tried other solutions and those solutions didn't work. And it reached a breaking point where they were about to give up. And then they realized that, you know, some, they had some kind of revelation or met like some sensei or uh, somebody who, who was like, no, there's a better way. And, and here's what it is. And so again, you've written out the background story in your brief. So you've kind of, and you've, and you've written about the other solutions that didn't work in your brief too. So you kind of have all that written already. And then from, so you've done the lead, the background story, and that leads into the unique mechanism of the problem. So Right now they had this turning point where somebody was like, I'm going to show you the truth. Or they realized like they stumbled across an article that changed their mind or whatever. And then you explain the unique mechanism behind the problem. And after that, you explain part four, the unique mechanism behind the solution. And so now we've already got a bunch of our copy written. We've, we've done the lead, the background story. We've showed you know why traditional solutions didn't work and, and the real reason that their problem exists. We've also showed the real solution for that problem. So now we get to the product buildup and reveal, which is number five which is that you know, they started looking for something that incorporated the mechanism of the solution. And at first, maybe you know, they looked at out-of-the-box things, but those didn't work. And they realized they had to do it themselves. And there was trial and error. And they struggled. And, but then finally, they had a breakthrough. And you know, either they used it for themselves, or they shared it with other people. And people started getting success. And everyone was like, oh, you've got to share this with the world. And that's when product was born. And that takes us into the close. And in the close, we're going to be like, you know, introducing product Here's everything that you know you get with product, whether it's informational or physical, you know, the features and benefits, you know, talking about the the price buildup, you know, you normally cost this. Actually, I won't get to that yet, but I guess the, the more so the um well, I guess the value buildup, right? Other things would cost like 10 times as much. And you know, even if you did those, that would make sense, but this isn't gonna cost nearly that much. Um, and then you know, getting into like the the big price reveal instead of you know, $500 or $200 is only going to cost you $100 getting to the guarantee, all that kind of stuff. That's all part of the close. So it's kind of all encapsulated in the close. And I, I have a whole outline that's part of what C is, uh, you know, and then telling them to buy and, 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 you know, what happens after they buy and, and then basically finally giving them like a crossroads, like a two options thing where it's like, you can either, you know, do nothing and life will continue on the same. But if you're here now, you're in pain. So Clearly, things haven't been working. So why would you just continue on with that path, especially when you have an easier option, which is to just click the button and get this product? And you know, it's, there's a risk-free guarantee. So if I'm wrong, you risk nothing. But if I'm right, you, everything changes. So, you know, click the button, buy now, and then finally FAQs, which is where you do your frequently asked questions at the end of it. So just really quick on a recap: lead, background story, unique mechanism of the problem, unique mechanism of solution, product buildup and reveal close FAQs. And so that's that's C. And again, you have a lot of that information from doing RM and B. So by the time you get to C, it's, it's a lot less daunting. So if somebody checked out the transcript here, they just got a formula for sales letter. So well done. That was awesome. I was going to say, that makes it seems so easy. You just hooked all of us up. I'm ready to go. It's my pleasure. Uh, so this seems bulletproof, right? You're handing us the formula, your method, 
as you've taught this to your mastermind members and others, where do they typically mess it up? Is there a trend that you see where it's just like it starts to fall apart? Um, anything we should pay attention to? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there, there's, and the answer is that there's several places where uh, people can screw right. up or, or, or do. Uh, you know, the first one and most obvious one is they don't do the research, which is something that my partner Justin and I will then notice immediately and, and kind of uh, chastise people for because it's like, like you start if you start reading a sales letter and you're like, you know, who are you talking to? They're, 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 a lot sales kind of when this happens, like the the copy or the letter will seem like it's it's trying to talk to, to everyone and be everything to everyone, right? Instead of being really targeted with the voice and really talking to a specific demographic or a specific set of people. And that generally happens because somebody didn't do enough research. Um, so that's one thing. People still skip over the research. Uh, on the mechanism side, same thing. They don't really define their mechanism really clearly. So they kind of have a really good lead, but then they start just sort of meandering around and um, kind of go start explaining a bit of science that they found that's interesting in the lead. And then they kind of go to the story, but they go back to the science and then they don't actually really present it in a way that there's a problem solution approach to any of this. And then the last one would be just not following that outline. Um, and that gets them into trouble. I mean, I just had, I looked at like a really, really good copywriter's letter he was struggling with just yesterday. And um, so many of the pieces were good, but he kind of got away from the outline. And so he had this whole middle part between the lead and the background story that just like basically didn't need to be there. And it added like eight pages of copy that didn't go anywhere. Um, and so it was like, Hey dude, you can just cut like all of that. And he was like, you know, oh my God, like, I don't know, it's not like a value roll, but <laughs> you know, he was like, oh my God, like yeah, I can. And um, so, so those are three places where I think, uh, you know, not, you gotta do the research. You really need to have a good mechanism. And then ideally you would follow that outline pretty closely. So we talked about RMBC in the intro, we teased, the ROI escalation ladder. Yeah. So basically this is for, you know, freelance copywriters who are working, you know, getting clients and they want to be able to charge more and they want, you know, and they want the clients to say yes to it. And so when I talk about like an ROI escalation ladder, what I'm talking about is, is essentially you're going to help them to see the ROI that they could get from hiring you. And so the way you do this is by doing the math for the client. So I'm going to use an example of the way I might do this. And, and maybe for some of the writers who are listening, this might seem like really big numbers, but just take what I'm doing and you can, you can modify it. And you'll, you'll see it's very modifiable. So, you know, if I'm talking with like a prospective client and I normally charge like 50,000, 60,000 for like a sales letter, which is like a lot. I, I don't know how many people charge more than me for that. And it took again time to get there, but you know, if I'm talking with them and let's say it's like a health supplement, kind of company because I do a lot of work with those people and know the space really well. And, you know, I kind of end up uh, first and foremost, by the way, I'll talk with them for uh, as long as I know they're a, a qualified prospective customer client, then I will spend, you know, the first half an hour, 40 minutes of a call, um, just find out about their business and their current funnel or, you know, how things are going, like what they're doing. Like, I don't, I'm not talking about me or my fees until way late in the conversation after I've already really understood what they're doing and given them a bunch of free advice that's actually valuable that they can take, even if we don't go anywhere with it. Because I want to demonstrate my my value and ex expertise and things like that. So that's why I'm doing that from a freelancer's perspective. Uh, but once you get through all that, you know, I'm kind of going to be like, all right, so, you know, I, I my basically, you know, I normally charge like 50000 dollars for a sales letter. That's my fee. I don't know if that sounds like a lot or a little bit to you. 
uh, and usually I'll pause and if they're kind of just like, uh-huh, you know, I'm like, oh, that's a good sign. And if they're like, oh my God, I'm like, all right, that's probably, I don't go up my, my, my escalation ladder, but assuming that, you know, I, they're, they're the right kind of client and, and I've done my, my kind of due diligence and all that. And they're like, kind of like, okay, sure. Yeah. Go on. Um, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, and let me explain, you know, that might sound like a lot or I don't know, but let me kind of break it down for you and explain why I charge what I do. So, you know, you're in the health supplement space and, you know, if you hire me, Really, if you're paying $50,000, you know, the expectation is that whatever I write for you is going to gross at least a million dollars in revenue, right? They're like, yeah. I'm like, all right, cool. And you, you still have supplements. So I kind of know what your average order value should be. I know your metrics and your profit margin should be at least 20%, really probably like 30% because of the long-term monetizing your email list and things like that. But let's just say 20%. Is that fair? And they're like, yes. It's like, all right, cool. So that means is right. If, if we're expecting the sales are to gross at least a million dollars, at a 20% profit margin, which means we're expecting for you to net at least $200,000. You're paying me $50,000. So assuming that happens, you just got a 4X ROI on your money right there. And this is one of the reasons why I can charge $50,000 because, you know, again, if you pay me $50,000 and get $200,000 back, you'll do that all day. But really, if we're being honest here, the goal isn't actually even like a million dollars, right? The goal is really like $10 million. And for the right offer, you know, it can totally gross $10 million or even way more, but even at $10 million. So let's say that, you know, it, and then this doesn't happen every time. And I'm not saying it will be an absolute home run, but you know, if it is, and this sales letter can gross $10 million for you at a 20% profit margin, well, that's $2 million in net profit. Right. And so, but the, what you paid me stays the same. So in that case, instead of getting a four X ROI, you're paying me $50,000, but you're getting a 40 X ROI on that investment. And so when you hire me, nothing's guaranteed, nothing's certain but I have the track record of having so many successful offers in the space that we've talked about. And so really the reason you're paying what you're going to pay for my fees is because there's a much higher probability that I will get you those types of ROIs. And when you look at it that way, paying 50,000 to get 200,000 or 2 million back in net profit is a pretty big no brainer. And so you're doing the math for them and you're really doing the math. You're not just sort of saying you could gross a million dollars because that doesn't mean anything for them because like they may be like, yeah, but what if I'm not profitable? Um, you're showing why you're you're justifying your fee, but you're doing it in a very kind of value-driven way. Uh, and the escalation aspect of it is because you start with $50,000, you end up at $10 million. <laughs> um, you got to escalate this whole thing, but you do it in a way that actually makes sense. And so again, go, even if you know, say you charge $1,000 and the person's going to, wants to gross, you know, $100,000 and their profit margins 10%. So you're like, or even then you're, you're paying me a thousand dollars for the chance to profit $10,000, right? Like the same, the same, you can apply it no matter what the numbers are. Um, but I, I've, since I've done that, I very rarely get any resistance to my fees. So as I'm listening to you, um, I'm wondering about your mindset because having that type of conversation is very different than probably some of your early conversations, uh, when you were just getting started. So how has, your mindset changed as you've grown in your business? And what advice do you have for other copywriters who are struggling to maybe even hear you rattling that off and are just like, I can't even imagine ever having that conversation and escalating in that way? Yeah. And that's a, a great question, a really fair question. And it's, it's hard for me because it's like now I've had, I don't know, you know, at least the last five or six years of kind of success. So it's like, I feel like all confident charging those fees, but there definitely was for the first couple of years, right, it was like I was really afraid to ask for more money. Um, so, and I'm you know talking about going from four ninety seven to nine ninety seven was like terrifying, and I was afraid of being rejected, and you know what if they said no and all that, and, and um, 
so my mindset today is entirely different from then. Uh, you know, I think some things that help is like really focusing on getting, you know, small victories lead to big victories. So I, I think going back to focusing on being the best of your copy, it's like if you can start, you know, gaining some wins with your copy um, and then, you know, being okay with celebrating those wins and, and feeling good about yourself, I think that helps a lot. Part of it actually comes down, and this is more maybe more tactical, but trying to work with clients or set expectations of clients of you really wanting the data on how what you do for them perform, how it performs. Because not only can you then, of course, go and be like, hey, I wrote this thing and it's converting at this percentage. But um, if it isn't doing well, you can kind of learn why. Maybe you can even work with that client to give them like a you know some variance and optimize it. And by doing that stuff and getting data from the client and creating more of like a more of a collaborative relationship, uh, you know, you'll generally, you'll learn more about the business and you'll learn more about what works and what doesn't work. And so as you start to get more wins and you start to understand the business more and also in and beyond the client, really try to understand the whole business. Like don't just, you know, most of the other stuff, like they're not black boxes. Like affiliate marketing is actually not hard. It's like, there's a bunch of people off email lists. They want to send for your offer. You're like, I'll pay you X amount of money for every sale you make. They say, great. They make sales. You send the money. Like that's affiliate marketing. And I, for a, a, the first year of my health, self, my health supplement company, I like, you know, almost went bankrupt and, and closed it all down because I was so afraid of affiliate marketing and how, Ooh, I don't know. And it's like, it's just not hard and it can seem hard. So I get it. But the point is like, if you start to learn different aspects of the industry and not just copy, but affiliate marketing, email marketing, data monetization, what are the right metrics? Like, what are things like that? The more you know, and the more of like a subject matter expert you become, and you couple that with having wins. And again, if your win is that, you know, something made $10,000 for somebody or $5,000, like it doesn't matter if they're a win's a win. And so if you start having wins and you start to understand the business and kind of understand why things are winning, then you become more confident when you talk with clients because you're not, the best thing you can do is come to them as like, you know, a subject matter expert, advisor, peer, all those sorts of things versus coming from like this subservient place of like, Oh boy, I hope you hire me and I hope you like me and I hope you are mad at me and I hope you hire me again. Like, and then I get it because again, it's scary. And if, if you get the client, it means you get to pay your rent. And if you don't get the client, it means you don't get to pay your rent. I've, I've been there at pawned musical instruments to pay my rent early in my copy career and my Xboxes. I probably pawned like 10 Xboxes. I pawned one. <laughs> I'm serious. We've all been pawned there. One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pay pay the rent and then you know buy one back after a good month and then a couple months later you're like are you serious and and back to GameStop you know or whatever, um but but yeah I think really like that that's what I would say like focus on on just getting little wins under your belt because again those wins lead to big wins and then uh you know being an an expert where you can come and and be an expert advisor and and people will just clients will respect you more and they'll pay you more and they won't be as difficult to work with either, right? Like they won't be pushing back and just like randomly wanting to change parts of your copy. If they think that you're the pro and the expert, then, um, you know, that's a lot more fun to a uh, type of a client to work with than somebody who's kind of like, doesn't trust you and doubts you. So yeah, I hope that, I hope that helps. I, that's the best, I think off the top of my head that I've got. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned when we first started talking about your early career. You mentioned that uh, a few clients shared your name with other clients. And I am curious if, in addition to writing great copy, if there's something that you did in order to get your clients to you know, sell you to, to you know, their friends, to their network, uh, you know, what does it take a, a new copywriter today? You know, what can they do so that their clients will sell them to the next person in the network? 
Yeah, a couple of things. Um, great question. I, you know, I think one thing is, is to ask, as simple as that sounds, to be like, you know, if once the client has expressed that they're happy with the work that you've done for them, um, you know, generally, I mean, first being like us perfect, you know, I've got a bit more availability. Is there any other projects that you want to, you know, go ahead and move forward with or tackle? And, you know, sometimes they'll just be like, yeah, and they'll give you something right after. And that's great. And they may say like, no, or, well, I, you know, it will be a few weeks, which is really means a few months or a few months, which really means in a year from now or whatever. Um, but in those cases, you know, being like, okay, I totally get it. But, you know, if you're really happy with my work and I, and, and you seem like you are, and, and I'm so appreciative of the opportunity that you've given me here and, you know, I'm a freelancer. And so if there's any way that you could give me a shout out on you know Facebook or, you know, you're to your network, or even if you know any people who are looking for a you know, reliable, dependable and, and, you know, skilled copywriter, like, like I am, and you could, you know, maybe introduce me to them. It would just mean the world to me. Um, like, you know, is that something you'd be able to help to do? And I mean, 99% of the time they're going to say, yeah, if people aren't, a-holes most of the time people are, are, are good and you know, of course we've all had that one percent of the clients who are awful but um you know most of them aren't that way and so so yeah asking is is one thing for sure and 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 then beyond that the, again I, I know it sounds like silly but if you just like do a really good job though like you're just a percentage of your clients are just always going to preferring you to other people anyway like i had a guy named dr william farrow who i'm still friends with to this day he hired me off upwork and Okay, it would have been 2012 to do email marketing for him. I applied to his uh, position and he like he called me. I don't know if he called me through Upwork or he called my cell phone number, but it was like 10 minutes later I had this call and I'm like, what's going on? And it's, hey, it's Dr. Farrow. And he's like going off and I'm like, what is happening? And I thought he was a little bit crazy, but I, you know, wrote emails for him and helped him with his list and, um, you know, and, and it did well for him. And then he just like completely unsolicitedly, uh, referred me to several other clients, including one guy named Dr. Guy Annunziata, who runs a company called BrainCore, which is a, a neurofeedback uh, system for doctors. Where And, and basically, he introduced me to Dr. Uh, Annunziata. And then Dr. Annunziata had 150 different doctors who were running their, uh, like licensing his technology. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm getting like a retainer from Dr. Annunziata. Then I'm working with all of the doctors who are under him. And like it all, I didn't, asked for anything from Dr. Farrow. He just did that because he, uh, you know, my work was good and he was a connector. And so, uh, you know, there's a percentage of clients who, if you do great work, they're just going to do that for you and open doors for you and things. But then I think you can help yourself too by, for all the other ones who aren't that way, just asking them, you know, politely, but, you know, and sincerely if they can help share with others. And it makes a huge difference. I mean, it's, it's like a, if somebody refers somebody to you, right, you're just way more likely to, to hire them than if they're just coming at you cold. All right. So I want to go in a different direction and talk about your schedule. And you know, I know you mentioned earlier your supplement companies and you work with clients and you have your own mastermind group and there's probably so much more on your plate. Plus you have a family and a you know, young daughter. And I know it doesn't all happen at once, but I, someone else with a younger young kids, I just am wondering like, how do you do it all? How do you schedule your time so that you can be at this top elite level in your business and in life and multiple areas of your life? For sure. So it's a, a great question. And it's something that I've gotten pretty good at, but that I can still definitely get better at. Uh, I, it's something I recommend. It's a couple, because a couple, one thing is not, one problem we do is we take on too much. And then when we take on too much, it doesn't matter how good at scheduling you are, because you're going to have too many different demands for your time. And, and, 
Um, and again, this is coming from somebody who's, who's doing like 10 different things at the same time. So uh, I'll, I'll qualify that in a minute. But the main thing I do is for each week, I look at, I kind of write out everything that I want to get done for the week. And I'm like, all right, like here, you know, here's the, the brain dump. Here's everything that has to get done. And I'm like, all right, well, out of that, like, what are like the two to five biggest needle movers that if I got those things done, you know, things will chug along and progress in a positive direction and momentum will continue for like my career and my life and you know, my health, whatever other things I'm concerned with. And so, you know, if I'm writing a sales letter, that that's always going to be on there if it's, you know, close to being due. Um, like I know I have, you know, that's a needle mover. Uh, I, you know, it has to get done, but I also, every sales that I write can, can continue to further my career. Uh, and it may be something where I want to, you know, create a piece of content that I think is really important or, uh, you know, do the sales page for my mastermind or whatever. So I, I've got two to, to four or five things that are the biggest needle movers that I'm like, these are the things that if I can get these things, either get them done this week, or at least like put a lot of good quality time into working on them, I will be, you know, feel good about that. And so from there, the next question is, well, how much time will it take to complete these needle movers? So, you know, for a sales letter, let's say it's going to take, may take me 40 hours, may take somebody way longer. But for me, let's say it's 40 hours. I'm like, okay, I'm like, well, I don't really want to spend the whole week working on the sales letter. And it's not actually due for a couple of weeks, but I'd like to spend 12 hours this week on it. Like, all right, so then there's, there's five days, one day I don't even want to work on it. So let's say four days, that means like on four days, I need like a three hour chunk where I'm going to work on this sales letter. So I'll, you know, I have kind of like a, a grid. I actually, I do it on like a spreadsheet, but I have like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I kind of will plot three hour chunks of time for each of those days where I'm going to work on that sales letter. And I, I try to do them during the times of day where I know that I'm the most productive and the, at the best with writing sales copy, which for me would be from about 8 a.m. between the window of like of, of 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. Like, so I'm in there. So I'm trying to plot stuff in, in that stretch of time. Um, you know, and then usually that... That's like, I'm not trying to write usually multiple sales letters in the same week at this point in my career, right? So uh, other stuff, maybe like a, a sales page where if I do the same thing, I kind of be like, all right, well, it, this thing's going to take like 10 hours. Cool. I can probably finish that this week if I do two hours a day for five days. So I kind of go through and I plot out those big needle movers and I actually plot out the windows of time throughout the week. And then if I have stuff that is like a reoccurring thing on my schedule, I have to schedule around that. So you know, I have a mastermind call from 10 a.m. to 1230 Pacific time every Tuesday. I have a coaching call for a client from two to three thirty every Thursday. So there's a little bit of plotting around those things. Um, but I get that onto my calendar. And then generally there still are some gaps of time there. And in those, it's like, all right, well now based on everything else, it wasn't a needle mover. What are the most urgent and most important things that if you know I really need to get done and want to get done this week? And how long will they take? And I do the same thing and I kind of fill in the gaps around my schedule on those big needle movers. Um, so that that's kind of how I approach it and I'm okay and I can accept that I might not get everything I want to get done in a week too because like you know, the insert the cliche right that most people underestimate or overestimate what they can get done in a month and underestimate what they can get done in a year that type of thing but it is really valuable uh and then two other, other thoughts on that one one thought would be so I have like multiple companies too but I've, I've built teams and like uh structures in place to where I'm not as hands-on so like I own a, a call center in Las Vegas where we do, uh, you know, phone, like customer support and also phone sales for health companies and econ companies and stuff like that. But I've got a CEO, COO, sales trainer. I've got a new hiring manager and HR. I mean, we've got, you know, like I have 60 or 70 employees at this point. Um, but the reason we got to 70 was not because I built it to 70. Is I got to like 10 or 15. And then I had the right people to get from 15 to 70. 
And so now I, I spend a little bit of time on it here and there, but I don't have to, it actually doesn't take up as much of my time. Um, and yet it's just, you know, it does, it's a seven figure business and stuff. So it's, it's cool. Um, and then the other thing that I would just say about this is like with that, doing it this way and really looking at the hours that projects are going to take and at least estimating, it really helps because I think we do have this thing where we kind of think we can get more done than we can. And, and so to give you an example for right now, with what I'm doing, I was looking at this at the start of the month and I'm like, all right, I have this sales letter to write this month. I think it's gonna take me 40 hours. And I kind of wrote that down and I'm like, all right, I, and for the call center, we're, we're going through some changes and, and some good opportunities are here. So normally I spend a couple hours, like a month on the call center, but I want to spend 40 hours this month. Okay. Write that down. I'm like, I want to create um, a course for my copywriting method. I've been talking about doing it for a long time and I think I could do it in 40 hours. So perfect. Write that down. And then, um, you know, of course, there's basically copy accelerator is going to be 20 hours of the week. And I figured something else was going to be 20 hours a week, too. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then I look at it, I'm like, that's 160 hours. So that's like an entire month, like basically right there, which is like, fine. But then I'm like, well, what about all the other stuff that I want to get done? And, but, but at least I know that going into the month, because then I don't make all these unrealistic expectations where I, I think I can do 10 more things than I actually can. And end up feeling stressed and frustrated and disappointed in myself. It's like, if I know what realistically I can get done in the month, then I'm, I'm comfortable with getting it done. I think if we don't kind of do that and we sort of just assume we can do too much, but we don't actually figure out, you know, what that actually looks like. I think that's where we end up getting into a lot of issues of our time management. Yes. And that's where I get into issues with my time management. So, <laughs> um, sure, we should have asked, how did you manage your time when you were writing 12 sales pages a month and so right. one or two, but that's for maybe the next interview. Uh, yeah. Happy to share it on the next one. So we started this conversation talking about dying and let's wrap up with a question about death. How did you lose your fear of dying? Yeah. So it's a great, I love that you guys really do your homework. I just stalked really. you. I just stalked you like crazy. Solid. Um, yeah, I had a, uh, when I went to, I went to college at the university of West Florida, which is in Pensacola, Florida. And I took a fairly non-traditional route to get there. And meaning I, I first went to college at Boulder first semester. I dropped out. I worked in a movie theater. I did a music startup thing that failed and then realized I actually liked learning and, and ended up applying to the school in Pensacola, Florida that nobody's ever heard of and going there. And so I was already 21 at the time. So I was a little bit more mature than, you know, other people who were starting at a new school, um, just within that context of not being like 18. And, uh, I had one of the, I, I decided to like, I think I, I don't think if I had to take it or I decided to take a, um, an intro to ethics course. And the teacher on the first day is a guy named Bobby Johnson. And he was this uh, shaggy haired, probably was like 25, 26 year old at the time. And he was like the teacher for this ethics class. And it was, you know, all freshmen and kind of like a lot of people who were in it who didn't want to be in it, but they had to. And on the very first day, I remember like a, a girl who, you know, she was like a, a true freshman, probably 18. And, and she asked, you know, well, why should I study philosophy? And he said, well, for me, I study philosophy because now I'm no longer afraid to die. And that really just kind of stuck with me. And I, I didn't even really fully understand it in the moment, but I kind of, I kind of did. I'm like, I mean, he's probably examined his life and, you know, because of that, he's, he's not afraid of death. And so I just, it just stuck with me. And then I became friends with this professor over that first semester. And he convinced me to, to switch my major to become a philosophy major and I did, and I, you know, read 
all kinds of philosophy, but including existentialism, which is all about people being obsessed with their death, but also the idea of if you're going to die, like we all know we're going to die. Like, right. You know, you're, you're, you're thrust into this world and, you know, you have this limited scope of time and then you die. And, and, and for most of these existentialists, they weren't really very religious either. So they kind of thought when it was, it, it was it. And, but the question is like, like, that's not the surprising thing or that's saying that's just whatever, but it's like, what do you do with the time in between that matters? Right. And so, um, you know, as, as you look at that and you start examining your life and what it means to live a meaningful life and what it means to, to kind of have an impact and, and then accepting that you are going to die, I guess, I mean, it does matter because you accept it. You're like, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm aware of that now. So I might as well make as much, you know, of these moments that I have until that happens count as much as possible. And, you know, that, that just started to, to shift my, my mentality to, to accept death more as, a, as an inevitability because you spend a lot of time thinking about death as a philosophy major and um, to focus more on, on what you do until that happens. And so that, that's a big start of it. And then, you know, for Bobby, I found out too, like, uh, you know, towards the end of, of my time at college that he had, uh, I guess it was cystic fibrosis. And um, then he actually died a couple of years later. I, I don't, he maybe was 30 or 29. And um, I wrote something about it recently into my email list and then it's, uh, it'll be on my blog at some point too. But, you know, I think really it's, it's kind of those things where I was sad, but I thought about him and what he said. And I really believe it. I believe that, that guy wasn't ultimately, you know, he never, he never complained. He never cried. I never saw him like in misery or suffering. I mean, he, he really was accepting of his death and I think that made his life so much richer. And so I try to do the same thing and, you know, yeah, we are, we, we started heavy and we're ending heavy. Um, but <laughs> You know, I think it's important. I think it's it's better than than being pretending that stuff's never going to happen to you, and then you kind of waste your life. It's like it's better to accept that it's death is an inevitability. You know, unless we really kind of have some crazy scientific breakthroughs, and but if that's the case, then okay, fine. But how do you know that that's that that's a great the greatest motivator of all? Like Tony Robbins is awesome, but it's an even better motivator is knowing that you're going to die. You have a limited time, but you have a chance to make an impact on on this planet. And so that's kind of just what I try to take to my life as well. This has been a fantastic interview. Um, the transcript for this is, I'm going to print it out and it's immediately gone in my pile of stuff that I got to review. Uh, just, you know, the, the formula for copywriting, the way that you've grown your business, there's just a ton to learn here, Stefan. So thank you for that. And if people want to connect with you or learn more about you or find out what's even going on next, maybe even meet you at some kind of an upcoming conference uh, in say March, um, where should they go? <laughs> Yeah, so um, yeah, they, uh, there's there's apparently something something going on in March that uh, I'll be at where they can see me. Um, I think you know might have something to do with you guys. I'm I'm not sure, but uh, no. Um, but yeah, we'll be there with 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 Kira and Rob. So yeah, you guys seriously buy your tickets um, to TCC IRL. We'll link in the show notes. Thank you. Do it. Um, but yeah, no. As for me, like uh, you know, you can visit me at my website is stephanpaulgeorgi.com. So my full name, which I'm sure you guys can link to in the notes as well. Um, my blog is on there from, from there, you can subscribe to my email list, which you should do because I write like thousand word, like emails on everything from copy strategy and the offers that I'm writing to entrepreneurship and mindset and everything. Uh, and then you've got the blog and, and talk about my RBC method on that site. And, um, yeah, just, that's the best way. And then, yeah, I'm on Facebook as well. Feel free to like add me or, you know, find me on Facebook and, uh, I try to really be accessible to people. So happy. To I've added you on Facebook. I'm now in your group and I just got 
accepted into your email list. So we are totally connected now. You can't get rid of me. Um, We're officially connected. Just get the SMS alerts coming. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, we are so excited to have you at the event and just excited to have this conversation. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you guys. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.